Heavenly Father, we come before you and we, we give you thanks for our children. We thank you for the blessing they are to um, our families individually and the blessing that they are to our church uh, as a congregation, Lord. We just pray now for them as they um, head out into Sunday school, Lord, that um, their hearts will be open to the Word of God. Lord, that it will um, sink deeply into it and that, Lord, that they will grow and in time, um, if not already, know you one day as their own personal Lord and Saviour. Lord, we thank you for our Sunday school teachers. We thank you for the service they give, for the willingness to share the word with our children. And, Lord, we pray and thank you for Peter as he comes and brings the message to us today, Lord, from your word. Uh, Lord, give him clarity of mind and thought. Um, that uh, your words will be his words, Lord, and that um, our hearts will be open to your word. We give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one of the things I enjoy um, is every once in a while looking at the Facebook memories. Um, and I, I flicked it on this morning and I went through and up on the Facebook memories came up that six years ago, um, we had just arrived back from the Middle East from like 50 degree heat in the Middle East. We were living in Matamata at the time. Uh, and it recorded that I got up in the morning and there was ice on the inside of the windows. So I switched on the heater and went back to bed. And um, it's really interesting just kind of floating back and going, wow, that was only six years ago. Thankfully, it was a bit warmer this morning, still not, you know, tropical, but it was at least warmer. And thinking about it, kind of going, well, I've been here with my family at Hokanui for four years now, and there's been an awful lot of change. Um, I can remember when we first walked through those doors, um, yes, they didn't have those, they had those partitions open, but you could have sat everybody kind of in this half. And now we're, we're kind of struggling to, to, to find extra seats. I remember when we first came, I looked around at the people that were here and I went, wow, we've lowered the average age of the congregation. And now I'm one of the old people. And, and a frightening thing happened a, a few years ago, and this is only in the last four years. I hit that magical milestone that I turned 40. And it's one of those, it's one of those birthdays that you, you, when you hit, you, you suddenly realize you're middle-aged. There is no dodging that bullet. You know, you are 40. That is it. And, um, you know, you, you think about middle-aged and you think of all those kind of stereotypes that, that come up. I mean, midlife crisis and, and all those things. I, I wasn't going to grow my hair long and go get a sports car because that wasn't going to happen. But I was thinking, you know, what is it about middle age that, you know, makes those stereotypes, because there's often a little sort of nugget of truth in there. And one of those things about middle age is that that's a time where we often get comfortable. We found our rut. We found our spot. We know who we are, and we're comfortable in our own skin. And we're kind of like, yep, yep, I've finally got to that stage where I'm no longer striving, struggling, just you know, things have got comfortable and I've become automatic pilot. I'm in cruise mode. I'm often taking the path of least resistance. Just, just, just take the easy road. Okay, I'm not, not striving to, to conquer the world anymore. 
And I know in, in my own life, it's, it's a stage when hopefully your kids are a little bit more independent and you can start thinking about yourself again. Because, um, you know, when the kids are young, it's, it's, it's all about them and the, kind of your world gets turned upside down. And we all have moments in our life when we become comfortable, when we become an automatic pilot, when we take the path of least resistance, when life, life kind of starts focusing back in on ourselves because we deserve it. We deserve that time just to take stock and have a little bit of me time. It's not just a middle-aged thing, even though you kind of make fun of the, the middle-aged crisis. It happens to young people. You only live once. You're making the most of all those opportunities and that, that youthful enthusiasm and energy that, that you have. And it can get comfortable just doing the, the, the same thing and kind of being absorbed in, in your own little bubble. It can happen at the other end for the mature, that you no longer have to listen to a boss because you're retired, or you can do things the way you want, when you want, how you want. When you found that really comfortable rut, and it's actually quite nice to just stay in it because it's comfortable. See, no matter which life stage you're at, we all, we all hit those moments when it's comfortable when it's easier just to keep on doing the same thing day in, day out. And the question we have before us is, how do we be men and women after God's own heart when things get comfortable? Because it happens. When things are going hard, when we're struggling, it's easy to cry out to God and to follow him because we need him. It's when things get comfortable that sometimes we lose our way. We're going to be looking at the 2 Samuel chapter 20 and 21. So if you've got your Bibles, have a, uh, if you can turn to 2 Samuel chapter 20. And we're picking up, this is, this is towards the end of, end of the Samuels, um, but really chapter 20 is, is halfway through a big section. And we have to go to the start of that section and realize that when we have ch chapter 20 happens, David's in, David's in his middle age. He's well into his middle age. In fact, if we go to the start of that section, which is 2 Samuel chapter 12, sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 11, This is what it says in, in verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Amorites and besieged Rabbah, and David remained in Jerusalem. This is the first time David's taken a break. He's now reached that level of success where he can take the foot off the accelerator and relax a little bit. So in that year, instead of heading out with the army, he decides, I'll just send the commander out with the army, Joab. I'll send, I'll send the army out, and I'm just going to take things a little bit easy. 
I'm going to enjoy the fruits of my labor. I'm comfortable, I'm relaxed, I'm just going to have a little bit of me time. And so he does. And he sits back in Jerusalem and sends the army out. And in contrast, we have Joab, who's probably about the same age, and he's the, the one out there doing the hard work that David should be doing. And all the way through, we're going to be seeing David contrast with somebody else. Because that's one of the things in narrative. If you're reading a story, you're always looking at the main characters and you're kind of comparing one to the other. And we're going to be seeing that all the way through. And we know that the later on, if you kind of scan your eye, we've covered this a few weeks ago, David's decision ends up in disaster. Because he stays home. He ends up climbing up to his roof one day when in the, the, at the end of the evening and the heat of the, after the heat of the day. And he spies Bathsheba there, and it's kind of a downward spiral. So David becomes passive. This is the first time he's taken the foot off the accelerator. And it ends in disaster. So let's flick over a little bit further in the story to chapter 12, verse 24. So David commits adultery. He ends up murdering in order to try, try to cover that up. Bathsheba's pregnant. She has a baby. Nathan, the prophet, comes in and, and um, says, you are judged. Your son's going to die. And then we pick up the story in verse 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and lay with her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because of the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. Meanwhile, Joab fought against Rabah of the Amorites and captured the royal citadel. When you start looking at the timeline here, this is at least two years after David stayed home in Jerusalem. He's, been, he's still taking things easy. He's comforting his wife. He's looking after himself. He's still sending Joab out to fight the battle that he should be doing. So here we have David and Joab contrasted again. David is being passive. Joab is being active. And it ends, it ends in disaster again because he's just taking his foot off the accelerator. We pick up the story again in in chapter 13, verse 21. When D King David heard all this, he was furious. And all of this was about um, one of his sons raping one of his daughters. So this has just happened. He's heard about this. He's furious. Absalom never said a word to Amon. And Absalom is a, the brother of the sister who's been violated. Either good or bad, he hated Ammon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. Two years later, when Absalom's sheep um, herders were in Baal Hazor near the border of Ephraim, he invited all the king's sons to come here. So in this, this section, um, David is being contrasted with Absalom. He hears of this horrific thing that's happened in his family. Sin that's just ripped apart the family. 
And David is rightly furious. But he does nothing. He is passive. He takes the path of least resistance. He pretends that it's not there, it hasn't happened. Meanwhile, Absalom, the brother, plots revenge, looks for, actively looks for a way to have retribution. And because David did nothing, he took the path of least resistance, it ends up an absolute disaster because Absalom ends up killing his brother. He ends up fleeing. It causes even more strife within the family. We pick up the story in chapter 14, verse 1. It's been several years that Absalom's been away from the family in exile. Joab, son of Zehurai, knew that the king's heart longed for Absalom. So Joab sent someone to Tekoa and had a wise woman brought there. And he instructs the woman to pretend to, to go and, and, and talk to David about a problem and basically forces David's hand to say, actually, let's deal with this. Notice again, David is passive. And Joab sees the problem and says, look, you haven't dealt with this you haven't dealt with Absalom. Your heart is crying out for him. Do something. So Joab does something. He tricks David into to calling him back. And David allows Absalom to come back, but he won't speak to Absalom. He says, you can come back, but I don't want to see you. So instead of dealing with the problem, dealing with the elephant in the room, he takes the path of least resistance. And it ends in disaster because Absalom ends up turning the people away from King David and starting a coup and overthrowing the government, and David is on the run. And that's the context for the chapters that we're going to be looking at today. So if we can turn to chapter 20. So David, through all of this time, David ha has, has been taking his foot off the accelerator. He's been in cruise mode. He has kind of been taking the path of least resistance, aiming for things that are comfortable. And we've seen him being contrasted with all these people all the way through. And we pick up the narrative in verse 20, when David returns back to Jerusalem, having defeated Absalom, Absalom having been, been killed by Joab. Let's read verse 1. Now the troublemaker named Sheba, son of Bekri, a Benjamite, happened to be there. He sounded the trumpet and shouted, We have no share in David, no part in Jesse's son. Every man to his own tent, O Israel. So all of the men of Israel des deserted David to follow Sheba, son of Bakri. But the men of Judah stayed by their king all the way from the Jordan to Jerusalem. When David returned to his palace in Jerusalem, he took the ten concubines he had left to take care of the palace and put them in a house under guard. He provided for them, but did not lie with them. They were kept in conf 
confinement till the day of their death, living as widows. Then the king said to Amasa, Summon the men of Judah and come to me within three days and, and be here yourself. When Amasa went to summon Judah, it took longer than the time that the king had sent for him. David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, son of Bakri, will do more harm than Absalom did. Take your master's men and pursue him, or he will find fortified cities and escape from us. So Joab's men and the Kithrites and the Pehithites and all the mighty warriors went out under the command of Abishai. They marched out from the Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, son of Bakri. So here we have David. He's back in power. And we have three other people that he interacts with. We have Joab. And in the, the meantime, remember Joab, we, we've seen him. He's the commander of the Lord's army. He's been active all the way through when David's been passive. Um, but he ends up in the chapter earlier um, killing Absalom. And because of that, um, David demotes him and says, you're no longer commander of the army. But he leaves him in place. He appoints Amasa the new commander of the army who has the unenviable position of leading people that he doesn't have their allegiance because Joab is still there. So he goes and tries to round up the, the, the people to deal with this, this final threat. And everyone's dragging their feet. And they're supposed to be there within three days and, and he's still trying to recruit all the people to get the army together and it's not happening. And then we have Abishai, who's Joab's brother, who then David says, look, take, take what, what we've got of the army and head out and, and, and pursue this man that's being a troublemaker and, and causing all this problem. And we notice in all of this, David is still passive. He didn't go out to deal with the problem. He sent one of his men first, and when that didn't work out, he grabbed the next person and sent them out. He's still taking the easy option. And it ends up in disaster because as they, as they head out with the army, Joab is still there, and he goes up to Amasa, who's... Now the commander, he goes to hug him, and when he does that, he takes out his knife and he stabs him in the back, and he dies. All because David isn't dealing with the, the issues that are coming up. So all the way through, we're having David being contrasted with all these other people. David is passive. Everyone is active. Everyone else is trying to, to do their bit. And every time David is active, uh, is passive, it ends up in disaster. Then we skip down to verse 14. We pick up the story. Sheba passed through the tribes of Israel to Abel ben Ma'aka and through the entire region of Beratz, who gathered together and followed him. All the troops with Joab came and besieged um, Sheba in 
Abel ben Ma'aka. They built a siege ramp up to the city, and it stood against the outer fortifications. While they were battering the wall to bring it down, a wise woman called out from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab to come here so I can speak to him. He went towards her and he asked, Are you Joab? I am, he answered. So she said, Listen to what your servant has to say. I'm listening, he said. She continued, Long ago they used to say, Get your answer at Abel, and that is settled it. We are a peaceful and faithful to Israel. You are trying to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why do you want to swallow up the Lord's inheritance? Far be it from me, Joab replied. Far be it from me to swallow up or destroy. That is not the case. A man named Sheba, son of Bakri, from the hill country of Ephraim, has lifted up his hand against the king, against David. Hand over this one man, and I will withdraw from the city. The woman said to Joab, his head will be thrown over to you from the wall. Then the woman went to all the people and her wise advice, with her wise advice, and they cut off the head of Sheba, son of Bakri, and threw it to Joab. So he sounded the trumpet, and his men dispersed from the city, each returning to his home. And Joab went back to the king in Jerusalem. Again, we have the contrast between David and this wise woman. And you're going, why? Why have it such a big section here? Talking about kind of a really, it seems like quite an obscure kind of situation. And the key is wise. This woman was wise. And in the Old Testament, when it talks about wise, it talks about skillful living. It talks about living out your faith in God. That's what it means to be wise. And here is a woman that says, who's active. As soon as the city is being besieged, she's up at the tower, she's calling down, and she says, can I speak to the commander? What's this all about? Let's sort this out. And she listens, and she, she actually goes and, and acts, and she goes to the town leaders and says, hey, look, this is what we need to do. In contrast, even though it doesn't say, but you, you've, you've got that idea of, of David being contrast with the wise woman. David's kind of the opposite. He's foolish. He's not putting his faith into action. He's passive. He's getting everybody else to do things, taking the path of least resistance, trying to be comfortable, and it ends in disaster. Because here we have even more bloodshed that happens, even more disruption to their nation. But the story does not end there. Let's read the first verse of chapter 21. During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord. This is a really pivotal moment. Because from 2 Samuel chapter 11 to this point, there was at least four years 
maybe even up to 10 years, when you kind of like look at the chronology and kind of go, this event, then this event, then this event. This has been up to 10 years in which David has been passive. He has not been actively following God. And he's had one disaster after another. He's looked for a life of comfort, a life of ease, path of least resistance. He wanted to focus on his own needs, on his own kind of me time. And it's ended in disaster. But finally, at the end of this period of time, David sought the face of the Lord. And it goes on to say, the Lord said, it is on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. The king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not part of Israel, but were survivors of the Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to spare them, but Saul in his zeal for Israel and Judah had tried to annihilate them. David asked the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? How shall I make amends to that you will bless the Lord's inheritance. After a period of up to 10 years, David finally is active. David seeks the face of the Lord. He cries out to God and says, God, help. And then he personally calls the Gibeonites and sits down with them and says, look, this is the problem. God's shown me what the problem is. Let's sort this out. And in this case, it wasn't even David's own problem that he made. It was Saul's problem. He was just dealing with the aftermath. But David deals with it personally. He sits down with the Gibeonites and says, what do we need to do to have restoration? Restitution. How do we solve this problem? And the rest of the chapter outlines what happened to, to, to get the restitution. And the fact that after that, the rains came and the famine was broken. And we pick it up, the story again, in verse 15. Once again, there was a battle between the Philistines and Israel. David went down with his men to fight against the Philistines, and he became exhausted. In the springtime, when kings go out to war, this time David led his men. This time David was active. At the beginning, he took things easy. He became comfortable. He took the path of least resistance. And it ended in disaster. But when he became active again, when he was actively pursuing his faith and living out his faith, to the point that he became exhausted, he was doing what God asked him to do, things changed. And what's amazing is that when we think about King David, yes, we know about all the things that he did that were sin and mistakes and all the things that we've kind of covered. 
but he is still known as a man after God's own heart. And you think this period of time in which he took things easy and kind of disaster after disaster happened did not define him, even though it could have been a period of up to 10 years in his life. That's significant. But it did not define him. He was still known as a man after God's own heart. Because God's grace and his discipline is bigger than anything we can do. Our mistakes do not define us. God's grace defines us. So what about us? What's the message in these two chapters and kind of the big, the big picture for, for this section that we've looked at? We've been given these stories because oftentimes we need an actual object lesson. We need to see it in flesh and blood. This is what it actually looks like in, in reality. No matter what stage of life we're at, there will come times when we become comfortable. There, are there will come times when life is easy. And there's a temptation to just take the foot off the accelerator and just, to, just enjoy that time. And God does tell us to celebrate those, those good times. But the big message throughout all of this is when we are having those good times, we still need to be active in our faith. We still need to live out what it means to be men and women after God's own heart. That is the crucial thing. And if we stumble and fall, if we've taken that, 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 that foot off the accelerator, if we've started to, to slip into a passive mode and, and to kind of um, go into cruise mode and just, just drifting along, that that period of time does not define us. We can still seek God's face we can still put into practice that faith in our life. Because God's grace and his discipline is greater than the mistakes we make. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we do enjoy good times that life is not just all about hardship and struggle. And we want to thank you when those good times come. But we also acknowledge that when those good times come, it's sometimes it's easy to take our eyes off you, to lose focus, to become passive. Father, help us to continually be seeking your face.
to live out our life as you want us to, to, to live, to make our faith active, so that our legacy is to be known after men and women after your own heart. So one day when we see you face to face, we can hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.